Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of IndyCast. Today we have with us The Economist's international correspondent, Robert Lane Green. And he's here with us to talk about his new book titled You Are What You Speak, Grammar Grouches, Language Laws and the Politics of Identity. It has already jumped up to number one in words and language on Amazon. So now brace yourself for a pretty intimidating resume. He's got a degree in MPhil in European politics and society from the University of Oxford. And hold your breath, he's fluent in German, Spanish, French, Portuguese, and he's conversant in Russian, Arabic, Danish, and Italian. Hi, Lane. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm curious to know with all these languages, uh, in which language do you think? Well, I am a native English speaker. I grew up in the South in the United States, and so I didn't begin my first foreign language until I was in high school, which in the States meant at age 14 when I first began Spanish. So I'm very much a native English speaker, not one of those people who grew up, say, in a bilingual family or a diplomatic family and so exposed to foreign languages all my life. I spent uh, the first 20 years of my life in the United States, and so I had to make an effort as an adult, really, to, to learn as much as I have. So then if I may ask, in which language do you curse, then it will be English, would it be? Because the first thing... First of all, I'm married to a, a woman from Denmark, and so I hear a certain amount of foreign language cursing in the home. It, it really, it, it's a very strong tendency on most pe- in most people's part to swear in their first language. And actually, some research has shown that if you're really particularly surprised by something, like you hit your thumb with a hammer, for example, you're much more likely to curse in your first language. And that's because it actually triggers an almost automatic response, which is more akin uh, neurologically to crying or laughing than it is to uh, normal use of language. Yeah, that's very true. In fact, have you heard of uh, Akbar and Birbal? These are characters from uh, the Mughal era in India. That is when when the Mughal Empire were ruling, there were two characters, the Emperor Akbar from the Mughal Kingdom, and he had one bright minister as Birbal. And they had this particular case where they had to solve, where one person claimed that he knew all the languages and they had to guess which was his mother tongue. So what they did was late in the night, they poured a huge uh, bucket of cold water on him and the first thing that he uttered was in Marathi. So he he cursed in a particular language and that's how they cracked it. That's a good way. It's a good way to do it. I think it sounds great. I haven't haven't seen the movie, but it sounds sounds fun. Yeah. Moving ahead in your book, I think one of the biggest challenges that uh, you would have faced, uh, I I suspect, is that uh, first of all, your book is definitely not a how-to book on English. It is, in fact, quite the opposite. Right. So your challenge would have been what should my book not be about, rather than what should it be about? Right. There are two large categories of books about language out there, whether English or, or language generally. Probably the best-selling category is the category of books where people take to their pages to complain about the decline of the language, how much the language is being abused or neglected or forgotten or unlearned by today's generation. And the sort of archetypal book in this category was the book called Eat, Shoots, and Leaves by Lynn Truss, which is a book about how no one seems to know how to punctuate and use commas and so forth right. anymore. Uh, and you've taken a pretty big swing at her, haven't you, in the, in the, in the book? Right. And I guess the thing about that book was uh, it had a very kind of a furious tone. It was sort of like the, the expressing the idea that civilization was just going down the tubes and it had to be stopped by a few brave guardians of decency. And I, and I just don't like that attitude about language in particular. I do take a swing at her because 
I feel like uh, language is something that I enjoy, and I just absolutely glory in it, and I just don't share the sort of anxiety or anger around language that seems to sell so many books in this category. And then the other category of language books is by those linguists, usually academic linguists, who write popular books about their studies of language, and they are, they're kind of a reaction to this point of view as well. People like Steven Pinker and John McWhorter and David Crystal write very good books explaining how they see language and, and countering this idea that language is in decline and that it needs to be stopped by people like Lynn Trust. And there are a lot of good books in that category, too. So what I tried to do to add something to the literature, instead of just copying one of those books, is to take my background in history and in political science and apply some of what I've learned in those disciplines to the study of language. And so what I think is the real new thing of the book is putting the story of modern nations at the heart of the story how, say, France came to be so closely identified with a single language, French, when 200 years ago, at the time of the French Revolution, it was a highly multilingual country where just about a quarter of the population spoke standard French. So telling that kind of story gives readers an idea of where these debates come from, where did these prestige standard languages come from, and why do people have such an attachment to them. Right. Uh, but do you think, uh, Elaine, that one has to be a bit of a stickler first to get uh, at a minimum level of decent English speaking and writing or any language for that matter and then perhaps you start to distinguish because you need to know the rules first so that you can get around right. them. I would say that's absolutely right and I think that and I for example in writing English for the Economist or writing my book obey most of the rules of standard written English on purpose. I want people to think that I'm educated and know how to write. And in fact, it's even more important for those who are relatively marginalized in society. So in America, that would represent immigrants and black Americans, for example. They need standard English even more than most educated, say, upper middle class white Americans do. So yes, really, I don't at all argue against teaching good standard English in schools. But I guess the word stickler is a specific kind of person, not someone who just cares about the quality of language, but I guess I think of people like Lynn Truss who get angry when they see it <laughs> when they see their kind of English violated. I think the kids do need to learn the language, but I think that we can teach it in a more positive and more engaging way and a less scornful, less anxious way. Right. It reminds me, the woman that you're talking about reminds me of uh, my English school teacher who would uh, make us write the same thing a hundred times if he got it wrong. Right. For instance, none. Uh, none is, is something that I, is, was ingrained to me. Like None of the journalists in India is smart instead of saying are smart. So many things like these were... Right. Well, that experience. That experience is unfortunately a common one. Many people learn to associate grammar with, with drudgery and with punishment instead of with a sense of curiosity and wonder. And there's a lot to be learned about English or any other language for that matter. And it really rewards that curiosity and a sense of love for language. And I don't think it's best taught by sort of the, the ruler on the back of the hand or uh, the, the hundred times copying a sentence on, on the blackboard. As for the case of none are, none is, I mean, that's a some, somewhat disputed usage. Uh, the great English usage book writer H.W. Fowler in the early part of the 20th century, in his great uh, dictionary of English usage, said that he was perfectly fine with with none are none of the none of the journalists in India are so and so on so on. So that's in, in itself in dispute among grammarians. I guess, uh, Lane, you are about uh, 15 to 18 years uh, too late in telling me that because <laughs> I, I still have to write those lines. <laughs> Sorry, I wish I could have helped you there. Yeah, but thanks for it anyway. You spoke about a couple of things here, like curiosity. 
and it takes me back to one of the lines from your book that I quote that uh, most sticklers or most people imagine language as codified, straightforward and pure. Linguists obviously don't think that way and obviously it's, it's more about curiosity etc. And it takes me back to a movie called Dead Poet Society. Have you have you seen that movie by any chance by Robin? Of, of sure, Robin? yes. It's, it's been a long time but it was, it was a beloved movie when it, when it came out here, yes. Right. So there, I, I recall in the initial scenes where Robin Williams, the, the teacher, the character played by Williams, he asks one of his students uh, to read the introduction of how to write poems by one Dr. J. Evans Pritchard. And it, it was funny how Pritchard prescribed that, you know, uh, to fully understand poetry, you must be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and then they, they, they go on to draw a graph and something on the vertical right. axis and then the horizontal axis and then calculating the total area of the poem, it measures the, the measure of its greatness and then he goes on to compare how a Shakespearean uh, sonnet is better than a Byron sonnet and then of course the legendary line from uh, Robin Williams, he says that we are not laying pipe, we are talking about poetry, it's, it's beyond you know, mathematics. So, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great comparison. I forgot about that scene, but I do remember it now that you remind me of it. And it certainly, it certainly is how I see language. It's not something you can just grasp out in that way. <laughs> right. But then on the same account, why is uh, so much grammatically correct writing also sometimes equates to uh, bad writing? You know, uh, for instance, when I was doing my MBA, uh, there was a chapter called Mission Statement or Vision Statement. Right. There were mission statements like these, and please bear with me, this is from sure. the Dilbert the mission statement generator, this one. It says, this company, it could be any XYZ company, it says, we exist to professionally build long-term high-impact sources so that we may endeavor to synergistically leverage existing effective deliverables to stay competitive in tomorrow's world. Now, right. <laughs> this means nothing except it's filled with jargon. So, Oh, and this is done by, I'm also working in a company which has SAP, as we are implementing SAP in a company and there, when I press F1 to figure out a way to bail me out, the help, help menu, right. it says a precise planning and controlling mechanism is of utmost importance for the execution of competitive order processing with guaranteed efficient and timely delivery to the customer of the required order quantity when three or four words could have done. So why is there so, bad, so much bad writing or am I just overreacting here? Well, no, I think that's a great point. You're, you're absolutely right that the rules of standard English can be applied to churn out some terrible prose, and non-standard varieties of English can be used to create absolutely captivating language. So when people defend their sort of stickler rules, they say, well, I'm just, I just want clear expression. Or I just want to stand up for good expression. Well, so do I. So does everybody. I am absolutely in favor of good use of the language, and I'm, I'm opposed to uh, sort of waffly or bureaucratic or overwritten or stilted language. And those examples that you just read are very good examples of the latter. Uh, you know, there's a particular kind of language that tends to come from large institutions, whether companies or universities or bureaucracies and government. And they are exactly the kind of way to, uh, you know, to show that language can be standard, it can be grammatical, but it can be plotting and dull. Whereas you can take a single creative individual who may not have that kind of education, but who can absolutely sparkle with their uses of language. So people confuse grammaticality and expressiveness all the time. Non-grammatical language can be highly expressive. Grammatical language can be absolutely terrible. I think you just pinpointed a couple of great examples. So what is good writing according to you? Let me put it another way. Now, if, if you were the editor and if I were your correspondent, I were, I, if I have to file a story to you, so what are certain journalistic liberties that you will allow me in my article? 
Right. For example, we try not to – I'm looking at my copy of The Economist Style Book, which is sitting on my desk here, right. and there are a lot of rules in that book. There are ways that we like to write in The Economist, and there are sort of discouraging rules, too. So, for example, we don't tend to like using uh, nouns as verbs that have sort of recently been minted into verbs, like we must impact the bottom line or we have to, uh, we have to author a book. We say you, you should have an impact on the bottom line or you should write a book, not author it. So what about if I have to search for a particular term and if I say Google it, so the noun becomes a verb in that sense, or FedEx it, so that is not encouraged. So would that be bad writing if I say, please FedEx me the autograph copy of your book to me? So would that be bad well, writing? Well, by answering your question, I, I guess I'm trying to say that we would not, we discourage Ah. using word, nouns as verbs like that. But it's not automatically bad writing. No rule should be automatic and should be applied all the time. And that's right. one of the things about learning about writing. A focus on rules only really doesn't teach young writers to think about how the language feels and how it's working. Mm -hmm. So there is a time to break any single rule. And the better sticklers are aware of this and will tell you, and they're, they're quite well aware that there are plenty of times when a, when a rule needs to be broken. And we in The Economist will allow the occasional swear word or the occasional verb noun or the occasional liberty with the language by way of humor or by way of illustrating something. So rules are, rules are made to keep, give order and predictability to a language. But no rules should be to sort of slavishly applied, no matter what the circumstances, I'd say. Right. Point, point taken, Lynn. And, and over the years that you've been writing, you've joined The Economist in, in back in 2000, and you've had a, a writing career much before that, too. Uh, do you find a big difference between the time when you would perhaps write down on a piece of paper your thoughts rather than typing it out in Microsoft Word, or you didn't have the Internet or Google or Yahoo to search your information. Mm -hmm. So has your writing mm -hmm. changed or has writing in general changed? Well, I think probably somewhat. But one thing, one thing that hasn't changed much is maybe how I write for The Economist newspaper particularly. The magazine of the newspaper, as we call it, right. has a pretty standard style that if people read it, they often feel like it's written by one person because we all yes. adhere to a number of style guidelines. And our editors are very good at rendering, rendering articles into that lingo so that The Economist has a very singular feel and it doesn't change very quickly. But in my own writing, including places not in The Economist, like in my book and when I write freelance articles and so forth, I think it's probably true to say that my writing has become slightly more informal over time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's just a, a, a gradual change in how I have written as a person, but I suspect that the Internet has had something to do with that in the sense that all of the media that we, we, we work in, blogs and uh, Twitter and Facebook and so forth, really prize immediacy and personality and a sense of you know connecting very very quickly and, and intimately with a person, and has downgraded the the respect we accord to highly formal, highly structured, you know, over long, very highfalutin vocabulary and so forth kind of language. So I'd say I probably have gotten more informal over the years. It wouldn't be surprised if if the internet didn't have a lot to do with that. Right. So where do you know that? All right, here is the line where I cannot cross. So being informal is good. And I know that you also run a blog on The Economist and your writing has to be a non-economist-like when it comes to writing on a blog. So there is a certain amount of you know, right. difference in either writing your book or on the blog or for The Economist print edition. But when, you, when you're talking about being informal, what's your opinion on some school students starting to use smileys or abbreviations like OMG or LOLs in their English essays? Right. Would, you, would you say, all right, that's creative? Or would you say, well, I'm afraid it's not the best way to go about learning English? I don't have the biggest worry about OMG and LOL, and I've written articles about that very phenomenon, and I've just uh, 
been on a panel with uh, over the past weekend with a couple of dictionary editors, people from some of the biggest dictionary publishers in, in the English-speaking world, Merriam-Webster and the Oxford English Dictionary and American Heritage, and we talked about that subject. And most dictionaries basically see it as their job to record the languages that's used, so they don't have a problem with recording, say, swear words or things like OMG and LOL. And the Oxford English Dictionary just recently did add those two to the dictionary. That being said, people are clever enough, even young people, high school students and so forth, are smart enough to know that OMG and LOL have a place in a certain playful, internet-based, informal variety of the language, but I don't see them putting it into, say, a formal paper. And if I was uh, reading a paper from one of my students at NYU and they put an LOL or an OMG into the middle of an otherwise academic paper, I'd certainly mark it up. I'd say it's, it's just not appropriate. Right. So uh, your, your son, Jack, would have a hard time like you did with your grandfather if, if he writes something similar in that manner. Yeah. I guess one of the interesting things about OMG and LOL, and I hear from my son, is that they're more frequently being said out loud. So OMG has been something not just people type on Twitter or the Internet, but they actually say it to each other. So that's kind of a cute little piece of teenage slang going on right now. But I don't think it's likely that, and Sarah Palin, a famous former vice presidential candidate here in the States, actually used the phrase WTF on TV a couple of times. And of course, the F in WTF has a stands for a, a vulgar word. And so she got a lot of attention for having done that. I think less so because of the vulgarity than because of the fact that she used right. WTF at all, that she used one of these internet acronyms. And I think it got, it got her quite a bit of attention. So that was the source of a lot, a lot of uh, giggling when that, when that happened about a month and a half ago. Right, and, and she's very famous for inventing new words like refugiate is what right. I read some time back. Right. On National Grammar Day this year, on March 4th, uh, which is National Grammar Day here in the States, um, I wrote an article about Sarah Palin and said that she's actually quite good with language. She is a very effective communicator. She knows her audience. She knows what they want to hear, and she's very good at delivering it. She's not like George Bush, for example, who really was quite clumsy with English. Uh, Sarah Palin is really a, a pretty devastatingly good communicator when she wants to be. So I'm not one of those who, who, who takes her for granted as a fool at all. In fact, in one of her interviews, uh, she claimed that she read The Economist, and I can send you that link as right. well. So. <laughs> we, we got a good laugh out of that at the, uh, in, in, in the building. Right. Talking about the Internet and uh, things becoming very small, like acronyms, do you see that Facebook and Twitter, in a way, are helping us uh, write better, in the sense that Twitter, 140 characters, Facebook, you can't have a status message which can run into a paragraph. Right. So it perhaps makes you, you know, think hard to say the same thing in as less words. That's what they taught us in school, that please use few words as much as possible. So I, I spoke with Andreas Kluth, your friend and colleague who currently is West Coast correspondent, and he's also uh, in the middle of writing a book. And he says that there is too much bad writing going on out there on Facebook and Twitter, and he's not so much uh, keen on, on, on those mediums. What's your take on that? You know, I have to say you're the first person to ask me that in that form because everyone else who's asked me about OMG and LOL and Twitter and Facebook takes it almost for granted that they're ruining the language. And so nobody has, nobody's ever asked me, and I think it's a great question, whether it could be improving people's language. I do think it's interesting when I'm sitting there composing it, a paragraph or Facebook or a sentence or Twitter, um, how much it does make you focus. One of the clearest signs of an of immature writer is overwriting. Just too many words, too convoluted of a construction used in sentences. They use long words where a short one will do, and they think that that sounds more educated or fancier. I wonder if it might be so that uh, these media like Twitter and Facebook wouldn't concentrate their minds a little bit on being as clear and as concise as possible. But if, if it were so, it would be really interesting. I, I can't say that I've noticed, but uh, now that you ask me, I'll start having a look out for it. 
Right. The last couple of questions, I know we are running out of time. You have in your book a few mentions on Hindi, that is the national language of India, and Sanskrit right. a few times. How much has Sanskrit influenced different languages? I wanted to ask someone who is very proficient in languages like you are, and there are different accounts of how Sanskrit is considered to be one of those languages which has spawned many other languages. You're asking about Sanskrit in particular? Yes. Right. Well, it's clearly one of the world's great classical languages. It has had an effect far and wide, well beyond India with the spread of Buddhism to Southeast Asia and across sort of North Central India, of course. And so, and also, as you probably know, and as I mentioned in the book, one of the world's oldest first grammarians was the Panini, the scholar of Sanskrit grammar, who wrote thousands of rules of Sanskrit grammar in sort of the era of, you know, in the West, we would say the era of ancient Greece and Homer and so forth. So a very long time before the West took grammar that seriously, one of the world's great grammar was written about Sanskrit. So it's a classical example of, of a classical language, something in which a great body of literature has been written. Is there enough evidence to know that a particular language has helped in bringing out newer languages or is it based on certain, it's, it's more like a historian's view. So a linguist is also in a way a historian and quite a lot of it is speculative. In that sense? Yes, I mean, what you can do is take modern languages that we know of and have records of and then work backwards based on what we know about how languages tend to change. And so you start with a few small correspondences, say a couple of words in this language and a couple of words in that language look similar, suspiciously so, and the two peoples might have plausibly once been one or that one migrated to the other area. And if you start with those two connections, then you can start really getting fundamental about it, sitting down with lots of vocabulary items and really starting to piece it together. And the, the best example of that was, in, was 250 years ago when the British civil servant, William Jones, discovered the Indo-European language family while a civil servant in Kolkata there in, in India. He, he discovered that there were just too many similarities between Sanskrit and Greek and Latin to be coincidence, and so posited when he got back to London in a famous speech that Indian languages in North India and Greek and Latin and perhaps also Celtic and Gothic were all of the same family, and lo and behold, he was right. And so this kicked off his voyage of discovery where all these other linguists started putting together these, uh, these connections, and it's just absolutely amazing what can be done by, by careful historical research. Oh, that's great. Lynn, how long did it take to research the whole book and the whole process? It must have been painful. Well, in my particular case, I wrote the book relatively quickly after thinking about it and working on it for a long time in my mind and gathering research materials. I probably conceived of the book in about 2004 when I was thinking about all these topics and how they might fit together. And I gradually just started buying books and building up a library on the subject and thinking about them, reading about them, clipping out articles from the newspaper, clipping academic articles, and gathering my momentum. But it took a long time. I thought I was going to write it nights and weekends, and I just didn't have enough energy to write on nights and weekends. But after I spent most of 2008 covering the election, the American election where Barack Obama became president, in early 2009, I took a three-month sabbatical to finally take all that material, bring it to an agent, write a proposal, and sell the book to a publisher so that I could then sit down and start writing at the library every day. And so that's what I did. And so just for three months, only about 90 days, I had unlimited time to write. And that's just what I did. I sat down at the library at 9 o'clock, and I started working, and I didn't stop until 5 o'clock. I'd pick my son up from after school and go home. So I just treated it like my job for those three months, and I got the bulk of the writing done in that time. But um, it was really the hard part and the long part was the gestation of the idea, the actual putting, you know, sitting down with the computer was relatively easy after I'd done all the thinking about it. In the end, it's come out wonderfully well. There are a few metaphors that I've marked in the book because I love them. 
and one of them is uh, is I think you were talking to someone who was speaking so slowly that if you played that tape back again when you wanted to hear it back, it seemed as if uh, you were an auctioneer and he was talking normally. Right. So it's a, it's a it's a nice way of putting a very simple thought that somebody was talking too too slow. Right. So I hope uh, the book is received very well and any any uh, first hand. Uh, uh, reactions on the book? Uh, it's been about a month and a half uh, since it's released. Well, we've had a, a couple of written reviews, which have been broadly very good. We just had a review in the New York Times last week, which was, was quite good. And I have had a number of uh, radio interviews, which have helped to get people listening uh, listening in and finding out about it. So, so far, so good. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with how it's gone in the first uh, three weeks or four weeks or so. And um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep plugging away at it. So I really appreciate opportunities like this to get a chance to talk about it. Great. Thanks a lot, Lane, and I hope this uh, book is a great success and it's uh, already doing well, so I hope it just goes on and perhaps a few of us from India would get to order the book and get to tell you something about the book too. Very good. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.